0: Media Masters with Paul Blanchard. Welcome to Media Masters, a series of one-to-one interviews with people at the top of the media game. Today I'm joined by journalist and media pioneer Luke Lewis. After graduating from the University of Oxford in 2002, Luke started his career as a music journalist at rock music magazines Kerrang! and Q. Poached by NME in 2002, he became their online deputy editor and masterminded a complete overhaul of their blog section, taking it from a standing start into a community of over half a million Promoted to online editor of NME.com in 2011, he doubled the site's traffic to 8 million in his first year and won two major awards for Best Consumer Website and Use of Social Media. In 2013, he joined BuzzFeed and launched its UK edition. As editor-in-chief, Luke has grown the website to an astounding 18 million unique monthly readers and manages a team of more than 40 journalists. In recognition of this achievement, last year he was awarded the Editor's Editor Award and saw BuzzFeed UK shortlisted as Media Company of the Year, And on top of all of that, he's also been named by de Bretz as one of Britain's most influential people. Luke, an astonishing career so far. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks for saying so. How did it all begin? I started as a music journalist, and you might say now that music journalism is probably not a particularly good bet for a graduate. But in my defence, I think going back to the early noughties, it was actually boom time for both music and print journalism. Mm. Uh, It was actually a historic peak for both um so it seemed like a pretty good bet back then nowadays you you'd think going into music journalism i mean there's no jobs really um sadly and so after i'd been in in that game for five or six years i was obviously looking for a route out and um certainly looking at at the internet because uh print not a good place to be and also the music industry was sort of slowly Actually, quite rapidly contracting. So it was. I wanted to get out of both of those things, really. And was music journalism what you wanted to do originally? Did you envisage that you would always be a music journalist? No, I sort of just drifted into that. I didn't have any any burning ambition to be a music journalist. Uh, the reason I probably I started writing uh, reviews when I was a teenager because uh, my dad was a music journalist. He was an editor. He edited the NME, funny enough, in the l- early nineties. So you know, sort of late eighties. So the sort of Manchester era. And there's a really famous uh, front cover of the NME, which is Sh- uh, Sean Ryder of Happy Mondays hanging off a giant E sign. Uh, there's another one, like famous Stone Roses cover, where they're all covered in paint. And uh, my dad was editor at, at that time. So, you know, he, he had, a, had a really good run. And so I guess that was quite exciting to a teenager. So I sort of followed him into the, the family trade, I guess. And how did you end up with an online
0: bent, as it were? were? you there laboring in music journalism? Were you always interested in online? Were you always engaged with social media? How did your career
1: move in that direction initially? You have have to remember that uh, the internet was kind of much less fun in in the mid-noughties, pretty much pre-social media. And so it was all about Google, really. And uh, so I I really love being editor of enemy.com, but it was kind of things were a a bit less creative then because what the game for journalists was really trying to uh, get to be top of search results. And what that mostly entailed was trying to cram lots of keywords into the headline. So if you were writing about, you know, a band's reunion tour, you would get the band name in there. You'd get the name of the venue, all that stuff. And so it was kind of not really very creative. And 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 back then, online was seen as kind of the unglamorous thing to do. You know, all the all the fun was happening in print, and online was just uh, almost it, like content farming just for SEO, like you say. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't seen as, as like the, the the sort of prestige place to be. Um, but then that all changed really in, in sort of the late. 2010, 2011, Facebook really started to take off as a significant referrer of traffic, and that really changed everything and made things much more creative because suddenly the game was more about creating articles that people enjoyed enough to share, rather than articles that were designed to sort of game Google and appear to up of search results. And at that point, I became much, much more interested in the internet and. A couple of years later, that's when I came across BuzzFeed. Because you can't fake that, can you?
0: The best way to get hundreds of thousands of people to share an article is to make it genuinely interesting and therefore people actually want to share it.
1: Yeah, exactly. You can't trick someone into sharing an article. You can trick people into clicking on a headline. So that's you know, where the, this whole clickbait thing comes from. Um, but I generally don't think that applies to BuzzFeed because our stock in trade is creating articles that people share and you can't trick someone into sharing something because when someone shares something on Facebook, they're saying to all their friends... I want you to read this, mm. so it has to be good. How did you move to BuzzFeed then? Did they poach you, or did you apply? If you don't mind me asking, I mean, how did the move happen? The job I had, which was launch editor, was never advertised. Uh, I just—I was such a huge fan of what they were doing. I just thought that that might be their next move. They didn't—they didn't have an international presence. It was purely U.S. And it was—you know—back then, this is two thousand two thousand twelve when I first approached them, and uh, maybe had a, a team of fifty, if that. Or based in New York. Based in New York, yeah. Uh, but I was just such 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 a huge fan. I just I just approached them as a fan, really, and uh, I did something which nowadays would be seen as quite old hat, which is I actually did a list, you know, forty one reasons why you should hire me. Mm. Uh, and um, there were, I, and I mocked up how a UK edition of BuzzFeed would look, and uh, they invited me to New York to to meet them, and uh, yeah, they asked me to set up BuzzFeed uk in march 2013 how long did that process start from you initially doing like you said what was the
0: what would have been seen then as pioneering x number of reasons as to why you should hire you how long did that take they obviously
1: liked the cut of your jib you know how many weeks was it before they said right you're hired it was really very very uh, fast indeed nowadays when we hire people we uh, you know we're quite assiduous and there's lots of Mm. different rounds You know, loads of people involved, but BuzzFeed was a much smaller company back then. So it really was just, I had one phone call with the editorial director, a guy called Scott Lamb. Then I went and had a very quick chat with Ben Smith, the editor-in-chief, and Jonah Peretti, the CEO. Hmm. I think all that together, probably only an hour. And uh, and unfortunately, I had to then work out a long notice period at uh, NME. Um, So that all, I was off the job at at January 2013, but I didn't actually start till March. So what was your first day like in March? Was it literally just you at that point? Did you have to find
0: offices? How did how were those initial early months?
1: Well, we were quite lucky that they'd found us an office. It was just a shared space, White Bay Yard, which is sort of a, a start-up incubator-type place in Clerkenwell. So I didn't have to worry too much about that. But yeah, it was literally uh, just me on the first day. We had a launch team of three. So gradually over the next couple of weeks, uh, another couple of people started. But it was really very very sort of cautious and experimental. You know, there was no pressure. We didn't have any revenue targets. We didn't have any traffic targets. And uh, really, a launch team of three. I mean, it's on the very low end of, of, of sort of ambition and expectations, mm. uh, in all honesty. Uh, but that was great because it was, there was a lot of freedom. You know, it was really just like a, a startup mentality, which suited me. So th- they were really very hands-off in the early days. But when, when it was clear that it was working, uh, six months later, you know, we started to um, staff up. Uh, quite rapidly but uh, initially yeah just just three people and what was your strategy on the first day then i mean clearly you've got an iconic international
0: brand were you just going to kind of localize their content or uh, i mean what what was where did you want to take buzzfeed uk as opposed to being someone just working for buzzfeed generally
1: yeah what i was really really keen for us not to do was become a sort of foreign bureau creating content and feeding it back to the mothership you know that's generally speaking when uh, u.s media companies have a presence in Europe or in the UK. That's what they're doing. You know, they're 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 hiring uh, reporters in a foreign bureau who are making sense of that country for Americans. Mm. And I absolutely didn't want that to happen. I wanted it to appeal to Brits, to the natives. Well, initially, it was a it was a question of anglicizing some uh, some of the things that were working very well in the U.S. To give you an example, the, the kind of post that was very very popular at the time in America, it was one which had done millions of views, which was. Photos that will restore your faith in humanity. Mm. Um, and there was lots of cute animal content back then that was performing very well. So naturally we thought that we could just sort of anglicise that. And that didn't work at all. We sort of did that for the first couple of weeks. And it was immediately obvious that British people, just, they don't want to be uplifted. And they don't really like cute stuff <laughs> yeah. either, actually. You know, cute animal stuff has never really worked in the UK. Uh, so we started focusing more on humour. And in particular, the, the the breakthrough was when we started doing humour related to class and sort of social categories and niches, communities
0: that touched a nerve with the
1: British psyche that
0: wouldn't touch a yeah. nerve in in, uh, in the US.
1: Yeah. So we we found a, like a British version of a of a sort of popular meme, first world problems, and we called it middle class problems. Then we and then we started doing more on the kind of hipsters you encounter in London. We did a, a post on uh, posh people and so we we that kind of humor really really resonated and so immediately we, we just kind of doubled down on that really it was it was obvious that if you want to go viral in the UK you, you have to, you have to be funny and also it helps to be kind of self-deprecating there's a particular kind of humor that resonated with with british readers uh so it was just a question of taking the the fantastic sort of infrastructure and 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 the formats that they've built up in the US but, but really anglicizing the, the tone in particular and adding a lot more humour It sounds like the, the, the
0: US management gave you quite a lot of freedom to find out what worked and what didn't because I mean I work in PR and I have quite a few American clients and one of the things that you struggle with sometimes is they like you said they presume that we're the 51st state and all we have to do is just add a U into the word colour and uh, we're aware but there's a there's a complete difference isn't there?
1: Yeah I think they thought of it as an experiment and they thought of it as as a, a start-up you know that's kind of part of buzzfeed's dna like if if the the company goes back to i think 2006 it was very very different it was really like a laboratory and initially it was doing some sort of like uh seo type stuff lots of lists of links and then started doing uh, far more sort of experiments in how to make content go viral uh, so it's always had that kind of experimental um attitude uh, but I, but i think also because the the way that buzzfeed content is distributed which is primarily via via social it makes sense to go for the niche, because if you can resonate within a particular niche, people will share it like crazy. It doesn't have to be universal. That's the, that's the big difference. right? Uh, so we started doing articles that made absolutely no sense to New York. You know, they literally wouldn't even understand the headlines, but they loved it because it would start doing tons of shares in the UK. And they thought, well, this is, this is exactly what BuzzFeed is all about. So you started with three people. When did things start to really take off? We got the go ahead in summer 2013 to hire a few more, but it was still pretty cautious. And by the end of 2013, there were still only 10 of us. The rate of growth has has increased over time. So at at the moment, I I would guess, I'd say we're hiring about two people a month at the moment.
0: And when when you were in this inflationary period, as it were, did you always know that BuzzFeed UK would move to, as it is now, a kind of repository for some quite serious, quite in-depth, quite long-form journalism? Or or do do people still think now, perhaps mistakenly, if they're not regular BuzzFeed readers and users, that it is just pictures of hashtag first world problems and middle class problems and so funny though they are, because someone like myself that reads BuzzFeed regularly, I enjoy both.
1: Yeah, I mean, BuzzFeed contains multitudes now. And it really, your opinion of what BuzzFeed represents really depends on how you access it. You know, there are, there are people who read BuzzFeed regularly who only come to it via one of our political reporters. You know, they might uh, follow Jamie Ross, who is fantastic on the sort of Scottish politics beat. And there, there are plenty of people uh, who only read his articles, you know. And so their vision of BuzzFeed is is is, is a source of, of Scottish political news. Um, and there are plenty of people who access... BuzzFeed because they've seen like a, you know, a funny entertaining list in their Facebook newsfeed, and to them they probably uh, think the majority of what we do is, is funny lists. So it really depends on how you access it. And do you get people, because I mean I use the app as well,
0: but do you get people that go on BuzzFeed app and, and the website and just go straight to the LOL or the WTF and ignore everything else because that's what they're, they're looking
1: for? Not really. I, I've not got the data to hand but you know we do have those reaction buttons at the top so you can filter the content by WTF or LOL. People... Don't generally go to those verticals. You know they do like the the content mix that the homepage offers. Having said that, you know the homepage is is not something we obsess over. It really is more about creating articles that people find in their news feeds, whether that's on Facebook, Twitter or, or Pinterest.
0: And that's the the vast majority of the way that people come to you then. It's article-based and it's share-based. They don't go to buzzfeed.co.uk and then simply look at what might be on the front page, like they might do with the Times or, or maybe even the Huffington
1: Post. Yeah, buzzfeed.com is, is, is the homepage. You know, there is a sort of significant audience for it, but it's not something we obsess over. And... The majority of our traffic certainly true that it comes from social media referrals, yeah. I think as, as a proportion, uh, a traditional media organisation like The Guardian or The Telegraph or the BBC, far more of their traffic comes via the homepage. Uh, And with us, it's really more about going out and grabbing an audience by creating articles that get shared. And when you say social media, what specifically do you mean? Because
0: is the more humorous stuff, does that tend to come from uh, Facebook or is the more political, more longer form stuff, is that linked to via Twitter? Do you have any kind of overview metrics on that when you think this is a serious article so therefore it will be largely shared on Twitter, for example?
1: Yeah, I mean, Twitter is far more about news, isn't it? Uh, Twitter is far more about uh, the daily news cycle. You know, it's things that are happening right now and the the way we think of it is kind of twitter is for the head, Facebook is for the heart. yeah, if you've written a, a a funny list you know that you're hoping that that will take up on Facebook, and it could potentially do millions of views on twitter. the potential audience is is much smaller, so your sort of frame of reference and your measure of success is different you know you, you It may only do thirty thousand views, but if you could see that it's had a high rate of shares on Twitter, then we'd see that as a success.
0: Tell us about your, your day-to-day role now. I mean, clearly when you started, and you were one of three, you were chief cook and bottle washer, as it were, but now, you know, in excess of 40 staff, that there must be a lot of kind of HR, you've got a lot of strategy to decide. How how hands-on are you?
1: Well, in- inevitably, you know, you, you start to move slightly further away from the content. You know, in the, in the early days, I mean, I, I was writing it all, and I was writing the tweets, and, you know, and editing the homepage, and, like, you know, if we needed... Uh, you know, some batteries for a mouse or something. I had to go out and buy, <laughs> buy those as well. You know, we didn't have an office manager or anything. Uh, so uh, now we have a few more people to to help out. But I just, I really, really love staying quite close to the content. I love brainstorms. I think that the, the best thing about BuzzFeed is the creativity, you know. I think a lot of other companies, pe- people hate brainstorms. They kind of, they're not very useful. Uh, and necessary evil And to people, tolerated. You know, and, and most people who work in media they are their their lives are sort of benighted by endless meetings you know sitting uh and embroiled in process and trying to force things through and the great thing about BuzzFeed is that we have this culture whereby it is very creative uh brainstorms are fast and and really productive and and ideas are kind of never shot down you know it's always a question of yeah okay let's try that because some of the things that work really well are the most off the wall ideas I mean we were covering the election and one of the most viewed articles we did was why the election result was like the red wedding episode from game of thrones It's <laughs> like just a really off the wall sort of pop culture inspired idea that no one else would have thought to publish i think it most other news organizations someone would have had that idea and they probably wouldn't have had the guts to even, to even say it, say it because someone would have said that sounds ridiculous I uh, so I, I really really think that's that's important to to maintain that culture of of openness and creativity, and and like let's just try that idea.
0: One of the things that you do well is, I mean, clearly the the, the culture that you've described there does come through in the writing. You can tell that you guys are, you know, you can write a serious article and it's worthy of respect, but you can also be light hearted and do both well, and that's quite a difficult balance to get. I mean, in terms of maintaining the culture, as you hire more people, do you find that that's quite the burden that you've got to hire the right kind of people that can do
1: light and shade both at the same time? Because that must that's a difficult skill. Sort of. I think it's it's more a question of of Hiring both sorts of people. Very occasionally, you you will find a sort of freakish genius who can do both. You know, we, we've got a couple of those. I mean, Tom Phillips, Alan White, as well. They're both really, really talented reporters, mm. but they're also funny. Uh, but I don't think you, you you can't really force that. I mean, sometimes you just get lucky and 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 you find someone that can do both. I think the the trick is to hire people who are good at one or the other and then try and create a culture whereby they can work together and sort of cross-pollinate. And the the real breakthrough with us for the uh, election campaign was when uh, we just created a little sort of miniature ops group, uh, and they were people who weren't political reporters, but they were interested in the election, and their job was to think of just like funny, off-the-wall ways of covering it. Uh, And so we had someone called Hannah Jewell, who is not a reporter. She works for the entertainment side. But she was really plugged into this community of Ed Miliband fans. And uh, so she turned that into a post. Uh, and that was the story that really broke this concept of the Miller fandom. And I was just so delighted his, by in that. And his resignation speech as well. Noe. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Which was just fantastic. And what what I loved about it was that Hannah is, is not a political reporter, but we, you know, we have a culture whereby uh, someone like that feels that she can write about politics, and so she can use these sort of great techniques that we've built up on the entertainment side and, and, and apply it to politics. BuzzFeed seems to have
0: had quite a large impact on the UK media scene. I mean, given that it is relatively quite a small operation
1: of 40 people, it's had an incredibly powerful impact. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I think it has. There's been a lot of imitation. And if you just look at the sort of structure of people's articles, they really have changed, I think, to, to, to mimic... Buzzfeed, you know, you, there's there's far less sort of multi-page galleries going on, a uh, lot more single-page lists, you know, the look and feel and the tone as well has become a bit looser, and and I think we we have certainly influenced that. I think in the U.S., Buzzfeed has faced a certain amount of snobbishness, you know, from the media establishment, place like the the New York Times, and we've never really had that, and I think it's because Buzzfeed kind of continues his great tabloid tradition that we have you know if you look at the sun it's 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 always had this tradition of blending scoop based reporting with really sort of powerful visual sense and a sense of fun you know h- blending humor with reporting and if you look at the private eye as well i think that exemplifies that sort of content mix so people don't really find it that weird. It seems uh, seems kind of natural in the UK in, in the way that maybe it wasn't in the US.
0: Do you think, the other British media still has some, some way to catch up? So, for example, on the BBC News Channel, they do a paper review every evening, and The Independent, which still has, you know, a, a vastly fewer readers than you guys do, still gets its front page shown on the BBC News Channel, but they don't show what's leading and trending on BuzzFeed, and yet you have those millions and millions of eyeballs.
1: Yeah, that, that is a little bit
0: frustrating, but I'm sure it will change. Uh, well, <laughs> 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 well answered. And how long do you think that will be then? Because clearly, I mean, if you look at it from your recruitment point of view, you know, as you're moving into more serious, more long-form journalism, you're recruiting journalists that have been on the other side, as it were. Uh, do you think that nowadays that kind of line doesn't even exist in terms of print, online, serious, semi-serious, listicle, etc.? If you're a journalist and you can write about, and you write about the media, you could write for the FTR, you could also write for BuzzFeed.
1: Yeah, I mean, journalists just like to be read, don't they? So they they, they go and work for places where they feel that they will have an audience and so we, we've been quite quite lucky recently i mean for example you know we hired our head of investigations heidi blake you know incredibly one of the most celebrated reporters in the country after the fifa files investigation she did for the sunday, sunday times.
0: times that's
1: right and uh, you know one of the big sells for her was that at, at the sunday times the, the 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 limitation she had was it was paywalled so yes had this large Print audience, but in terms of the immediate feedback, she would publish a story and then not really have much of a sense of who who had read it. And uh, Buzzfeed, you know, when you publish an investigation on Buzzfeed, it's like shooting out of a cannon. We have these social media channels that guarantee you, you know, hundreds of thousands of views immediately, and so you have that impact. And if you are sort of a campaigning investigative reporter like Heidi is, that that's really really attractive. You know, you want to know that your story has impact. And in terms of
0: engendering and creating that impact, you mentioned the existing channels like social media. Does your content management system allow for trialling of different headlines to see what's the most effective click, et cetera, et cetera? How does that work in terms of the mechanics?
1: Yeah, we have some quite cool optimization tools. Writers aren't really forced to use them, uh, but but the tools are there and they, and they are really effective. You know, one of the, the biggest things you can do to give an article the most chance of, of really getting a lot of shares is working on... Not the headline so much as the, the thumbnail. Like the thumbnail people see on Facebook can just make an enormous difference, you know, between an article completely dying and doing millions of views. So that is really fun to, to play around with. Uh, and also, you can, you can tweet the headline so that it'll be promoted on Twitter with a certain headline. Often that'll be more newsy and more factual. And on Facebook, you might go with a more emotive headline.
0: So when the person writing the article completes it and they upload it via the CMS, it, does it offer them the different options of, like, here's your headline for Twitter, here's the headline for um, Facebook, etc.? And also, do they do that, or do you have a kind of layer of subs, as it were, like you would have in a more traditional news operation
1: that would do that for them? Uh, we do have sub-editors, but they check things after they're already live. Uh, and so all those traditional uh, things that were, that were done by several different people and, and traditional media organisations, so there would be... Uh, someone would do... the f- the picture research, uh, someone would write the headline, someone would check the copy. At uh, Buzzfeed, the writer has to do all of that, you know, and they're given the tools to, to make that pretty easy. It makes uh, you more uh, agile as an organisation, doesn't it? Because the, the writer can put, put something to air, as it were, quite quickly. Yeah, well, it gives the, the writer just complete ownership of the entire thing. So when, when they have an idea for a story, it, it sort of forces them to think about, well, what, what would the headline be? How would you illustrate it? What's it going to look like visually? and that was a real challenge for me when i first started you know i would had no uh, training in photoshop for example and you uh, suddenly realized that well how am i going to publish this article i've got no one to design it for me <laughs> so you just have to have to teach yourself those skills
0: and i mean in terms of recruiting people with those skills now i mean you you very cleverly uh, wrote your, your fan letter if i can call it that to to the us guys and uh, they got you but now that you you're a more well established uh, organisation with procedures and I imagine a health and safety manual and all that kind of <laughs> stuff which saps the light out of people. How does it work now? I mean, do people still write speculatively or, or is it is it more of a kind of formal recruitment process? How do people, if they love BuzzFeed and want to work there, how do they get in?
1: Well, it depends if they're on the news side or the entertainment side. If we're hiring reporters, often we do poach them, you know, from places like The Guardian, The Telegraph, Sunday Times. On the entertainment side, often people will come, uh, they'll just like write post for us, speculatively, as part of the community. That's one of the things, that um, cool things about Buzzfeed is anyone can write for the community, uh, and so that's a great way to sort of show us what they can do. And we do have a, a sort of a, an editorial fellowship program, which is uh, people who've just graduated. They come and work with us for three months, and we train them up in various different elements of Buzzfeed. And very often, we will hire those those people. And I think the community is really, really helpful. Because, you know, often people come in for an interview and they can be uh, incredibly impressive personally. But it's only when you actually ask them to write articles. I think that's a really, really great way of, 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 of testing whether people are right for BuzzFeed. And one thing I'm really proud of is that because we have this route in to the company, often on the entertainment side, it's people who are not from a journalistic background. And we just hired someone called Jamie Jones who didn't study journalism uh, I don't think he actually went to university. He was—he lived in rural Wales and he worked in a hardware store. But he was just really good at the internet, really funny on Twitter. So we got him in as an editorial fellow, and he just really excelled. And uh, so I, I just think that that is great that you can bring people in who are actually not, you know, fr- fresh out of journalism school. They're just really funny and good at the internet.
0: Mm. And when you when you do get them on the, if I can call it the serious side, when they are fresh out of journalism school, or when you poach them because they've been at The Guardian or The Telegraph or whatever, is there a period where they have to kind of unlearn some of the more traditional stuff uh, in terms of the way that they might work or the way that something should be written that that might be suitable for many other websites and papers, but
1: is clearly not suitable for you and your audience? Yeah, fundamentally, it's, it's, a, it's a different kind of news sense. So at BuzzFeed, you're going for an article that... Gets shared and really grabs an audience. At a traditional news organization, you've really got this loyal homepage audience, so they're kind of going to read it anyway. So there is a certain kind of story that is done just for show. Like if you're the Guardian or the BBC, you're expected to cover everything. So there are lots of news stories that are kind of just there because it would be weird if they didn't cover it. At BuzzFeed, it's really more about writing something distinctive, so kind of filling in the gaps, like what hasn't been written about. How can you move a story on? How can you do something original uh, that, peop- that people will enjoy enough to share? So it is kind of a, a fundamentally different mindset. And also just the, the presentation uh, on BuzzFeed it, it tends to be more visual. So often there, there is a sense in which writers sort of have to start thinking like designers, really. In terms of the mechanics internally of how you commission, how does it work? When you have these brainstorms,
0: does whoever come up with the idea then get tasked with writing that, given that it's their idea, or or do you have a do you have a drawer full of unused ideas that you've not got round to doing, and you kind of divvy them up
1: on a Monday morning? How does it work? It's very very reporter driven. I think a lot of other places, things are quite editor driven. You know, an editor will come up with a news list, and then. Portion those stories out to reporters, and we don't really do that. It really comes from it really comes from the writers, and they'll come in in the morning, and uh, they'll just kind of have an idea, and then they do it. Uh, I think that that works because because writers have so many sort of tools at their disposal. You know, they know they've got a, their sort of viral dashboard that shows how their stories have performed. They also have optimization tools to make sure that the article is kind of geared up. For social sharing. So for for various reasons, it, it kind of makes more sense for it to be reporter driven in that way. And there is a huge amount of freedom. and That's another sell. You know, when we are poaching great reporters from legacy media places is that, you know, there is just so much freedom. You know, you have an idea and you do it. That, that's kind of the BuzzFeed mentality.
0: Again, in the traditional model, you have a, a journalist that writes an article, it's given to the subs, stones at, you know, nine o'clock at night, whenever it is, and then they can go. Is there, Clearly, when you mention the social media dashboard, do they have some role in, in keeping it promoted, as it were? So, so they, that's a piece of software that I imagine that has all these metrics. And is it their responsibility to
1: see how they can tweak that to, to improve, the, you know, the number of shares, et cetera? Yeah, they're encouraged to do that. And that is one thing that journalists have have never ever been able to do until recently which is Mm. optimize their article after it's already been published Uh, and the 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 best buzzfeed writers that are kind of very good at that you know they'll publish something that they really have a good feeling about they think it'll do well but then it doesn't do well so they think hmm i could probably work a bit on this headline or i could probably tweak that thumbnail image and sometimes that can make it make a huge difference you know, it can go from, from from doing nothing to doing millions of views. And you're really just, just tweaking a, a very small part of it.
0: And how do you share best practice within the BuzzFeed organization globally? Because, you know, you've learned that there. That presumably might apply to uh, BuzzFeed US as well. D- do you often go uh, back to the US to share best practice? Do they come over here? How does it work in the kind of growing global network of BuzzFeed?
1: Yeah, I think we've got quite a good system of, you know, exchanging people from one office to the other. And at any one time, there's always someone some from the New York office in London and vice versa. And there's a really interesting new project underway, which is kind of thinking of this notion of global news, which has never really existed before. You know, we, you've got stories that will uh, be of interest to an American audience, stories that will be of interest to a UK audience. But now we're starting to find that there is a certain kind of story that will take off all around the world. Uh, and that's a really interesting challenge in how you go about translating it for different audiences, and it, it, it's it's really fascinating because I think it's a kind of a, a new kind of global news story that's never really existed before. And we've we've had a few examples of that.
0: And what are they? What are the ingredients of it? Is it something that c- everyone can relate to that's quite factual, a disaster or a, some kind of a triumph? Is it something that cuts across national boundaries like football? Or but what what is it when you say global news story? Mm. What, what is that?
1: But it's never been sport and so far it's not been politics. Often it's, it's a classic sort of human interest story that really taps into internet culture. The first example of this, a story that really took off, it actually originated in Germany. BuzzFeed set up a, an office in Berlin a few months ago, mm. and we could tell that they'd had a pretty sizable hit with this story about a door. I think it was someone had pinned a note on a door saying that it was broken. And it just turned into a kind of a meme and people add in other jokes underneath and then it took off on Tumblr. And this door became sort of Internet famous in Germany. It's kind of hard to explain. Uh, so we put, but we could see that it was very popular in Germany in Germany. So we translated it into English and it was huge in the US and the UK as well. And then, and then we translated it into other languages and it took off. We didn't know that that kind of story existed, really, like something that was viral in pretty, in pretty much everywhere in the world. Uh, and then, of course, we we also had the the biggest post we've ever done was the dress. You know, yes, is it white we'll and gold it, yeah. or is it blue? and? I still have no idea. Yeah. And that was a, a bit of a lesson. You know, it really not only did it work in every language, it's kind of it, even you didn't even need language that was really so visual. And it worked so well on mobile. It, the, mm. the driver of that story was really people just taking their phones out you know, whether at home with their family or out for drinks with their friends and just showing them, saying, well, what do you think this is? That was really instructive and quite, quite inspiring.
0: And do you think it's, it says something about the culture you've created within BuzzFeed, the kind of agility where you can just try these things and some will go crazy and others won't, whereas the, the traditional model is you've got a newspaper with 32 pages to fill, five-page leads, blah, blah, blah. So it's, kind of, it's almost like a treadmill kind of thing, isn't it? Um, and the news might be different, but it's basically the
1: same thing. Yeah, that's the, the incredible freedom that the internet gives you. One thing you forget is that if if you if you're trying to put out a newspaper every day, you know there's huge costs related to printing that up. It's a, it's a whole you know industrial operation to print that many copies, and that does limit you. And when you're unshackled from that, you can have this what we call it swarming. So when there's a topic that the internet is really really interested in, it's kind of limitless. Well, let's mm. just see how many articles we can write about it. Uh, just bring. Everyone in from all different parts of the office, and just see how much we can create and some of those articles will take off, others won't it doesn't matter you know you can there's no limit to, to how much you're not you're kind of paying for Paper. does it risk diluting the audience though so for example with the dress one
0: you've got 10 million people that might want to look at that whereas if there's five stories about it it might get diluted across the various different articles or, or is in a sense all of its traffic and you don't mind which article they read
1: yeah we well, kind of don't mind you know it's 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 just always proved to be uh, a, a winning formula when you've got a subject that people are really interested in just throw everything at the wall
0: what's next for buzzfeed into, over the next few years because you can clearly see you're deepening the quality journalism if i can call it that the long form stuff while still doing incredibly well you know the listicles and all that engaging and funny content is it going to be more of the same do you trying to get to more eyeballs do,
1: do you have a plan if you don't mind me asking over the next few years well in the uk the plan is definitely hiring more reporters uh, and and so it's it, we're kind of at the moment we're thinking like do we want uh, like a housing correspondent or a health correspondent, so really um, hiring more beat reporters. That is the focus at the moment, but not losing sight of the entertainment side. So we want to keep expanding in news, but also not lose sight of the fact that, a uh, you know, a large proportion of our, of our audience comes for the entertainment side, and we want to get better in that and keep doing it and keep being creative and weird and funny. You know, that stuff is really important too. What's next for you personally, then? I mean, clearly you've had a, a, a fantastic time at BuzzFeed. That may
0: carry on for some while. But do you do you have an eye on where you might be five to ten years from now? <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, no, I, I really love working at BuzzFeed. I'd like to... I, my, my ambition is to keep building it up, you know, that, that we have this idea that we're building the newsroom of the future, you know, and how, how big can it get? Well, Luke, I've learned an incredible amount, and uh, thank you ever so much for taking
0: part, and I wish you the very best of luck in, in taking things forward. Thanks for having me on. A Big Things Media Production. <laughs> Big things!